Radio Mano Papachango. This is uh, going to be an episode of What Makes This Book Great. It's been a while. Oh, man. I love being on the road. Love being in the van. Love jumping in rivers in the morning. Love sitting by the fire, looking at the stars at night, swinging in a hammock. But I like being in a house with a really good microphone and a computer that I don't need to set up every time I want to use it. It's just sitting here on the table waiting for me. I can just sit down with my cup of tea, hit a couple of buttons, and here we are. Man, that's nice. All right, so I'm going to read uh, a story later called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, I think it is. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. And um, it's a hell of a story, as you're going to see. But uh, before I get into that, what I'm going to do is go back and look at some of the responses that I got to um, Cat Person, the story I read uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago now. You remember the woman, it's about a relationship and it includes all the texting and the and there's confusion and, and it's a, sort of an exploration of how we misunderstand one another and how men and women look at things differently, at least some men and some women, not to overgeneralize. Uh, very powerful story. So if you haven't read that story or you didn't hear that episode, maybe... Uh, you want to stop this and, and go back and find that and listen to that uh, to get an idea. Of, otherwise, you're not going to understand what the hell's going on for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, first, I'm going to read uh, a note that came from a listener named Gareth Halliday. He says, hey, Chris, really loving the new episodes, the, what makes the story great episodes. One thing that struck me in the cat person story was how the only time the narrator is taken seriously by others around her. Oh, oh, sorry. Taken seriously by others is around her sexuality. The story about her mom's intervention when she's losing her virginity, the group of friends who usher her out of the bar like she's the president, the lover solemnly asking if it's her first time. Contrast that to the way she thinks of her own sexual worth quite flippantly. It seems to highlight a contradiction at the heart of our culture where we have a notion of sex being somewhat meaningless or a sort of casual pastime in the way it's commodified in advertising and divorced from relationships and hookup culture, while at the same time, it's treated with such seriousness in the Me Too movement and focus on sexual misconduct by powerful men and so on. Interesting to see those conflicting ideas played out. I thought it was highlighted when she was fantasizing about sharing the bad sex experience that she'd had with this guy with a future boyfriend who she knows she'll never have. As if these types of meaningless encounters preclude her from genuine connectivity and closeness. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite insightful. I think there there is a lot of that going on. Uh, and now let's listen to a couple of reactions that people sent me, audio reactions. The first is uh, from Andy. Take it away, Andy. Hi, Chris. My name is Andy. I'm in Calgary, Alberta. And I believe this story is essentially about the inadequacy and inability of text messaging as a medium to express emotion effectively. Uh, I always try to avoid it. I've never been successful communicating an emotional request, need, response uh, via text message. So I don't use them anymore. If I need to talk to somebody about something emotional, 
um, you know, like attraction or uh, their appeal to me or my needs of them or theirs of me, it's by voice only because that's the only way you can really communicate, I believe. Thank you. All right, Andy. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I agree to a large extent. I, I find it very difficult to uh, communicate nuance in texting. I think texting is the – it's interesting that texting is the newest and also, I think, um, worst form of human communication. Uh not just because you can't communicate emotion properly. And maybe it's a generational thing. Um, I keep meaning to recommend my friend Tal Ruspoli's new podcast. It's called Being in the World. And uh, I'm reminded of it because he, in a recent episode, he was talking about how um, older people who didn't grow up with the internet tend to um, be dismissive of relationships that are based on, you know, dating apps or, or you know, that people my age uh, tend to say, you know, like Andy did, that it's, you know, it's not an adequate way to communicate anything with any kind of subtlety or depth. And uh, Tao argues that that's not, in fact, the case, that, uh, um, you know, that you can actually have uh, a lot of subtlety and nuance in a, in a sexting kind of relationship. I don't know. I don't know where where you come down on that, but mm, yeah, I've I never have. Although I wouldn't go as far as Andy goes in, in saying that you know voice is the only way to communicate these things. I think you know as a writer, I think um, writing is uh, has possibilities for communication that voice doesn't, in the sense that. You know, you can really polish it. You can think it over. You can come back to it later and tweak it. And, um, you know, obviously writing can be taken to the level of artistry, uh, as can voice, I guess, and singing or storytelling. Um, but, yeah, texting, I think, is a fucking disaster. You know, maybe part of the problem is that I just can't bring myself to use emojis. Do people really use emojis to say serious things? I, I mean, I can't get over the fact that they're just these stupid little cartoonish. Uh, it, it just feels so childish to me to to put an emoji. Like even even the punctuation emojis, you know, like you say something then like, you know, the semicolon right side of the um uh, parentheses is supposed to look like a winking smile. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> I, I just, no, it's fucking inane. I don't know. I probably sound like an old man to most of you. Um, but I guess I am. So what the fuck? Uh, even LOL, you know, or just expressing laughter in a text. It just feels so contrived. You know, and I understand that it's necessary sometimes so that people know you're joking. And that's a classic texting snafu is when you make a joke and someone doesn't sense the humor in it and takes it seriously. And then you've got a fucking mess on your hands. But uh, yeah, I can't I can't bring myself to do it. I mean, and also on a technical level, how is it possible that you can't like save a text for later or, or flag it like, oh, I need to get back to this. You look at a text, you put your phone back in your pocket because you're in the middle of something and you totally forget about it. I mean, in that sense, email is way superior. You can put shit in folders, you can flag it, you can mark it unread. I don't understand why texting apps don't have these very basic functions. But anyway, don't get me started complaining about technology or that'll just take over the whole fucking show. All right. Now, uh, let's go to Sam and see what Sam has to say. Hey, Chris, a tangentially speaking family all over the world connected via this wonderful, magical web of podcasts. I feel like listening to Cat Person, it, it, to me, it just 
surmised, I think, where we are with digital communication in so many ways. We build these pictures not only of the other person, you know, she's building this picture of Robert and he's ticking all these boxes of this this portrait she has in her mind. But in real life, we get lost via this this new way that we, we, we put the roots down, we put the foundations down in the understanding of one another through these images, through text, through messages. And it's just, I think we're at a point where not only are we portraying the other person in a certain way, but we're actually starting to see ourselves through the pictures and through the messages. And I think it's very confusing. And I think meaning and pain and anguish and anxiety and so many of the emotions that we're already dealing with are just placed in a a kaleidoscope of uncertainty as we build pictures through pictures and, and text. So yeah, it really struck me that all of that anxiety, all of those foresights and recognitions are made up in our minds with no context. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was wonderful. Thank you. And stay safe and peace and love to everybody at this this strange time. Thank you for that, Sam. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's. I'm guessing you're quite a bit younger than I am, so you're more, uh, maybe you have a foot on either side of the digital divide. Um, actually, I have a foot on either side of the digital divide, so I don't know where your feet are. I was in my early 30s when the internet was really getting rolling. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm among among the last people who didn't come of age and there there's another 10 years after me, I guess. Um, but didn't come of age in that environment. And I agree. And what a beautiful phrase too! this kaleidoscope of uncertainty. I think we're all spinning around in it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think I forgot to mention the name of Tao's podcast. It's called being in the world. Uh, he does it. Um, you know Tao from this podcast. He's been on several times. He's a filmmaker, a musician, um, sort of a magical figure. Uh, his father was this famous Italian prince who hung out with the Rolling Stones and Bridget Bardot and was best friends with Salvador Dali and that whole crowd. Tao's mom, Deborah, uh, has been on the show as well. Um and uh, anyway, he does the the podcast with um, uh, Patrick House, who's a neuroscientist I had on the podcast as well. I think his doctoral research was on uh, brain parasites. Very interesting guy. Very smart. And uh, he's living out at uh, Tao's compound in Joshua Tree, and they're doing these podcasts. Really interesting. Uh, I just listened to one that was extremely personal about uh, Tao's relationship and uh, polyamory in general and um, the challenges. And uh, it was uh, him and his partner, Nastasia and Patrick were were, uh, talking about all these things. Quite intimate, quite interesting. If you're interested in in those issues, that's an excellent episode to check out. But uh, they've all been quite good. He's only done... 12 or 13 episodes at this point, I think, or they've only done, I should say. Um, All right, so that's the plug for Tao. And uh, I agree. that I I think Cat Person is fantastic at illuminating these issues. Let's do one more um, audio snip that somebody sent in. This one's very special. Uh, You'll hear why. Hi, Chris. I just listened to your two episodes about Cat Person by Kristen Rapinian. I hope I pronounced that right. I identified so profoundly with the character of Margot that I wanted to write a response to your discussion. So here it is. A letter from Margot. Dear Chris, thank you for telling me what no one else ever has. For teaching me what I'm capable of. Although, I wonder if I've always known, yet was unable to articulate to myself what I was doing. 
I suppose it's somewhat like driving a car. You can drive an automatic car without having any idea of the inner workings that propel it. I've always had this strange fear that I was manipulative. I always brushed it off as irrational. How could I be manipulative? I'm kind and empathetic. I care so deeply for people and consider their feelings. Only malevolent people are manipulative, right? Right? I did not want to hurt Robert. For me, sex has always been about being desired. Sex is not about my pleasure. It's about the pleasure I can bring to men. What a thrill when I'm desired. At 20 years old, this is the only sex I've ever known. If, as a young woman, all I have is the power of desire in this world, how can I get a man, the large skittish animal that he often is, to be on my side other than to coax him to eat from my palm? I feed him when he cannot receive anywhere else in the world. First, I get his attention with sex, of course. But that isn't the most important thing. Sex alone won't get a man to eat from my palm. Because after all, he can get that elsewhere in the world. It's intimacy that clenches its grasp once the bait is taken. Where do any of us find true intimacy in this modern world? As a girl, I find it in my friendships, with my roommate Tamara. But where would Robert find it as a man living alone? In me. After the sex, intimacy is the power that I hold. I have intimacy free of sex. I go home to Tamara to share my experience, to be truly intimate with her. Robert believes he found intimacy in me. So, can you blame me for my tactics with Robert? He was seeing in me what he wanted to see. He saw a nice girl. He saw a virgin. He saw a girl who was incapable of wanting sex to be just sex. He saw a girl who, after having sex with him, surely could not change her mind about him. He saw a nice girl who was looking for comfort in a boyfriend. Not for a life full of new and exciting experiences. He was unable to see me as a 20-year-old girl, choosing to let herself be blindly led by the thrill of desire. I'm not claiming to be right in my actions, and certainly not claiming to be innocent. Robert did teach me a valuable lesson about older men, that they know so little about young women. I am a cat person. Like a cat, I am able to purr at your touch, but it does not mean that I will remain loyal. I find fulfillment and self-confidence in my own pursuits. Robert led me to believe that he was a cat person too. He was playing the game with me, but I wonder in the end if he even had any cats. Without cats, not a cat person, he was not playing a game. He could not land on his feet afterwards and continue to roam. God damn, that's good. It's it's good in so many different ways. It's so well written, so insightful. And uh yeah, and your voice sounds or her voice sounds uh yeah, like what I imagine that character's voice would sound like. Uh, sexy, smart, young woman. Some things that really jumped out at me. Uh, first of all, the, the insight that that our relationships with cats uh, are in some ways replicated in the story. So true. Uh, I don't remember whether I realized that uh, upon reading it or if, if that's a new insight. It's one of the great things about having a shitty memory. It's everything's new. Um, but... Um, yeah, I've had cats and and she's right. It's your relationship with a cat is like it, it takes some getting used to because there's none of the loyalty that you get from dogs. I, I remember a friend of mine uh who had grown up with dogs and I I'd, I'd been talking about how much I liked having cats around and he was always like, "Nah, nah, cats suck. Fuck those cats." 
And then eventually he he moved in with a woman who had a cat, and so he spent time with the cat. And, and he and I were talking. He said, you know, what I realize is that um, I'd, I'd always judged cats by the, like in the context of dogs, like cats are just real asshole dogs. And now I realize, no, it's a whole different thing going on with cats. Uh, and that's kind of like life in general, right? You know, you're always judging things within the context of what you've already experienced, which sometimes is adequate. It's all you've got, you know, it's all we have to go on. Um, but if you haven't had experience that's really similar to what it is that you're trying to figure out now, you just sort of naturally jump to fucked up conclusions that very confusing conclusions um, you know, like that cats are just asshole dogs as opposed to totally different thing. And of course, the key to a relationship with a cat is it's all in the moment. Like at this moment, that cat's sitting on your lap, purring, looking into your eyes and you're rubbing her behind the ears and she's just totally into you. But the second she's not into you, she will jump off your lap and walk away from you without a glance back. And you can call her as much as you want and make your little cat sounds and wiggle your fingers. And dude, she's just not open to um, negotiation. (laughs) That's the way cats are, you know, cats are doing their thing. And uh, when it suits them, they'll be all cute and affectionate and when it doesn't suit them see you later um there's a ruthlessness to it there's a selfishness there's a honesty that i admire in cats there's a a certain dignity um you know sort of the the opposite the mirror image of my friend's uh dismissal of cats uh, by seeing them within the context of dogs, I sort of have come the other way because I've had more cats now. I grew up with a dog and and I love dogs. But having spent so much time with cats now, the idea of having a dog is just overwhelming. They're so needy. You know, I'm with a dog now and it's just like, dude, why don't you grow up? Like get a life, dog. Why are you looking at me? Why are you licking my leg? Why are you like always waiting for me to tell you what to do or throw your fucking ball another time? Like, just get a fucking life. Get some dignity, dog. Yeah. So anyway, uh, interesting insight about how, how loyalty is not in the cat's emotional lexicon. Uh, I just think they don't experience relationships in that way. Um, I love the line where she's, she's talking about how a woman can use sex to get the man's attention, but that's not how you hold him because he can get sex elsewhere. It's the bait. And then she says, it's intimacy that clenches its grasp. Once the bait is taken, that's a really good line and written very nicely. You notice how taken resonates the way she constructs that sentence. Once the bait is taken, of course, she's referring to sex and we use the word taken. He took her, right? Um, He took her virginity. He took her innocence or he just threw her on her back and took her. You know, we use that verb in erotic context and uh, whether she's the author is aware of that or not um, doesn't matter because her sensitivity as a writer led her to phrase it that way. Uh, One of the greatest joys of writing is when you write something and then you go back and look at it later and you see layers of nuance and resonance and uh, double entendre that you weren't consciously intending. But there is some process in the in the brain that sometimes leads you to do that. 
in ways that are, it's probably as close as writing ever gets to jamming, like, you know, just playing a music, you know, a musical instrument. And when you're good enough at it, that you do things that you're not consciously aware of, but then you listen to the recording and you're like, Oh, I see what I did there. Oh, that was interesting. Nice, nice, subtle move there. Musician. Um, and the other thing that made me laugh when she said, I did learn one thing from Robert, which is how older men know so little about young women. <laughs> That's funny. Although be careful. Don't, don't uh, generalize. Robert may be older, but I think one of the things that was striking, I, I forget their, their age difference, but I think he's in his thirties and she's in her early, early twenties. You know, the thing you learn when you, uh, get older is that older people aren't really all that much older, um, that we're all, you know, once you get above 30, uh, everybody's kind of in the same boat. At least everyone's grown up. I remember I was teaching this, um, group of kids in Spain was teaching English and they were like eight, nine, 10 years old, something like that. And, um, I asked them to write down on a piece of paper how old they thought I was. And at the time I was probably 28, 29. And, uh, <laughs> I collected the papers and the answers ranged from, uh, 15 to 75. Like they had no idea. They just know, you know, th their sort of conception of age ranges, you know, maybe a year or two into the future and a year or two into the past. And other than that, it's just, it's just all a blur. And I think there's some, there's some accuracy in that. I think that, uh, you know, above the age of 30 or so, everybody's kind of grown up and then it's individuals like, you know, a 35 year old can be very mature or a 60 year old can be very immature. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not age dependent. I'm afraid. Uh, I think it is very much tied to age until you get to around 30 and then it's, it's it shifts to another track. Okay. So thank you very much for all those responses to cat person. Uh, that was a really interesting story. I am going to read today's story now. The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, O-M-E-L-A-S, by Ursula K. Le Guin. With a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright towered by the sea. The rigging of the boats in harbor sparkled with flags. In the streets between houses with red roofs and painted walls, between old moss-grown gardens and under avenues of trees, past great parks and public buildings, processions moved. Some were decorous, old people in long, stiff robes of mauve and gray, grave master workmen, quiet, merry women carrying their babies and chatting as they walked. In other streets, the music beat faster, a shimmering of gong and tambourine and the people went dancing. The procession was a dance. Children dodged in and out, their high calls rising like the swallows crossing flights over the music and the singing. All the processions wound toward the north side of the city, where on a great water meadow called the Green Fields, boys and girls naked in the bright air with mud-stained feet and ankles and long, lithe arms exercised their restive horses before the race. The horses wore no gear at all but a halter without bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of gold, silver, and green. They flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Far off to the north and west the mountains stood up, half encircling Omelas on her bay. The air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the eighteen peaks 
burned with white gold fire across the miles of sunlit air under the dark blue of the sky. There was just enough wind to make the banners that marked the racehorse snap and flutter now and then. In the silence of the broad green meadows, one could hear the music winding through the city streets, farther and nearer and ever approaching, a cheerful, faint sweetness of the air that from time to time trembled and gathered together and broke out into great joyous clanging of the bells. Joyous. How is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omelas? They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. All smiles have become archaic. Given a description such as this, one tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this, one tends to look next for the king, mounted on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter borne by great-muscled slaves. But there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect that they were singularly few. As they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man, nor make any celebration of joy. How can I tell you about the people of Omelas? They were not naive and happy children, though their children were, in fact, happy. They were mature, intelligent, passionate adults whose lives were not wretched. Oh, miracle! But I wish I could describe it better. I wish I could convince you. Omelas sounds, in my words, like a city in a fairy tale, long ago and far away, once upon a time. Perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bids, assuming it will rise to the occasion, for certainly I cannot suit you all. For instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Omelas are happy people. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary, what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here, floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold. Or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. Let's pause here for a moment and look at what she's done. It's, it's quite interesting uh, in terms of her writing strategy here. She starts off telling the story, describing this place, and then she steps back and now she's speaking to us, to her audience directly. And she's saying, okay, how am I going to describe these people to you? Because you and me, the storyteller and the people listening to the story, uh, we live in a different world. We live in a world where happiness is, is seen as archaic and silly. Um, and we tend to make assumptions about politics, that they had a king, that they had swords, that there was violence. No, no, that's not true. So she's saying in some ways, hey, don't project your own assumptions onto this imaginary place I'm describing to you. 
Don't assume that they were simple. She makes a big point. They, these were not simple folk. They were not noble savages or bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. We have this bad habit of considering happiness as something stupid. They weren't stupid, but they were happy. So she's setting up this sort of philosophical conundrum here. Because as she describes our world, the world in which the story is being told, it's hard for us to imagine people who are happy and yet not innocent or stupid. And then she gets into the, you know, she says the economics. She says that, you know, they don't have the stock exchange. They don't have the bomb. They don't have these things. No cars. And, and now she makes it very clear that she's making all this up, Right. Uh, I think that there would be no cars or helicopters. So she doesn't say there were no cars or helicopters. The first paragraph, she's speaking as if she sees this place. She knows this place. And then in the second paragraph, she admits like, well, okay, I'm making this up. But I imagine that there are no cars or helicopters. So she very clearly sort of positions herself with us on the reader side of this. Um and that we're all engaged in this sort of collective imagining together. And in fact, she says, I can't tell this story in sufficient detail that you are going to be able to see what I described. So I think it's best if you imagine it as your own fancy bids. Imagine it as your, as your own mind fills in the blank spaces. Interesting comment from an author. And then she goes through and she describes all these things that they could have, or maybe they don't have it. It doesn't matter. Hmm. Again, interesting. You're telling me a story. You're describing a place. Then you admit you've never seen the place. And then you start to talk about some of the things they might have. And then you say, maybe they don't have it. It doesn't matter. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back to the story. So she finished. She says, or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. As you like it. I incline to think that people from towns up and down the coast have been coming into Omelas during the last days before the festival on very fast little trains and double-decked trams, and that the train station of Omelas is actually the handsomest building in town, though plainer than the magnificent farmer's market. But even granted trains, I fear that Omelas so far strikes some of you as goody-goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, blah... If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Again, this is such an interesting way to tell the story, right? She's, she's putting herself right in the room with us. She's monitoring our responses. She's sensing how we feel about what she's said so far, and she's adjusting. Very interesting. Back to the story. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, blah. If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Let us not, however, have temples from which issue beautiful nude priests and priestesses already half in ecstasy and ready to copulate with any man or woman, lover or stranger who desires union with the deep godhead of the blood, although that was my first idea. <laughs> but really, it would be better not to have any temples in Omelas, at least not manned temples. Religion, yes. Clergy, no. Surely the beautiful nudes can just wander about offering themselves like divine souffles to the hunger of the needy and the rapture of the flesh. Let them join the processions. Let tambourines be struck above the copulations and the glory of desire be proclaimed upon the gongs. And... A not unimportant point, let the offspring of these delightful rituals be beloved and looked after by all. One thing I know there is none of in Omelas is guilt. But what else should there be? I thought at first there were not drugs, but that's puritanical. For those who like it, the faint, insistent sweetness of Druze may perfume the ways of the city. Druze, which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then after some hours a dreamy languor and wonderful visions at last of the very arcana and inmost secrets of the universe, as well as exciting the pleasures of sex beyond belief. And it is not habit-forming. For more modest tastes, I think there ought to be beer. 
What else? What else belongs in the joyous city? The sense of victory, surely, the celebration of courage. But as we did without clergy, let us do without soldiers. The joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. It will not do. It is fearful and it is trivial. A boundless and generous contentment, a magnanimous triumph felt not against some other enemy, but in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere, and the splendor of the world's summer. This is what swells the hearts of the people of Omelas, and the victory they celebrate is that of life. I really don't think many of them need to take Druze. Most of the procession have reached the green fields by now. A marvelous smell of cooking goes forth from the red and blue tents of the provisioners. The faces of small children are amiably sticky. In the benign gray beard of a man, a couple of crumbs of rich pastry are entangled. The youths and girls have mounted their horses and are beginning to group around the starting line of the course. An old woman, small, fat, and laughing, is passing out flowers from a basket, and a tall young man were f- and tall young men wear her flowers in their shiny hair. A child of nine or ten sits at the edge of the crowd, alone, playing on a wooden flute. People pause to listen, and they smile, but they do not speak to him, for he never ceases playing and never sees them, his dark eyes wholly wrapped in the sweet, thin magic of the tune. He finishes and slowly lowers his hands, holding the wooden flute. That's that's strange. So now she's made it clear that this is her fantasy, that we're brought into her fantasy. And she she shows us her creative process as it's happening, right? She's making these decision decisions in real time. Okay, we'll have religion, yes, but clergy, no. We have the oh, the orgies, okay, but not the not the sacred priestesses and the sacred whores of ancient Babylon. No, no, this is different. There's okay. There's still nudity and sex and pleasure. Oh, what about alcohol? Yeah, okay, we can have beer. We let's have this stuff called druze, which has all these great qualities, but no bad qualities. But then I don't think people really need to take the druze because everything's so fucking great. Um, she's making it up as she goes along. And then there's this child. It ends with it. This part ends with this child playing the flute. And it's interesting. She says, people pause to listen and they smile, but they don't speak to him for he never ceases playing and never sees them. And then the next sentence, she says, he finishes and slowly lowers his hands, holding the wooden flute. So now she's contradicting herself. She says he never ceases playing. And the very next sentence, he does. Okay, back to the story. As if that little private silence were the signal. This is the silence of him stopping, playing the flute. All at once, a trumpet sounds from the pavilion near the starting line. Imperious, melancholy, piercing. The horses rear on their slender legs, and some of them neigh and answer. Sober-faced, the young riders stroke the horse's neck and soothe them, whispering, Quiet, quiet, there, my beauty, my hope. They begin to form in rank along the starting line. The crowds along the race course are like a field of grass and flowers in the wind. The festival of summers has begun. Do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, second ham from a cobweb window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops, with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide. 
a mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there and the door is locked and nobody will come. The door is always locked and nobody ever comes except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens and a person or several people are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked. The eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining and it speaks less and less often. It is so thin, there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there. All the people of Omelas. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not. But they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships and the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. This is usually explained to children when they are between 8 and 12, whenever they seem capable of understanding. And most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often enough an adult comes or comes back to see the child. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there's nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omelas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelas for that single small improvement to throw away all the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. The terms are strict and absolute. There may not even be a kind word spoken to the child. Often the young people go home in tears or in a tearless rage when they have seen the child and face this terrible paradox. They may brood over it for weeks or years. But as time goes on, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no doubt, but little more. 
It is too degraded and imbecile to know any real joy. It has been afraid too long ever to be free of fear. Its habits are too uncouth for it to respond to humane treatment. Indeed, after so long, it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it and darkness for its eyes and its own excrement to sit in. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Yet yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there sniveling in the dark, the other one, the flute player, could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. Now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there's one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not, in fact, go home at all. Sometimes also a man or a woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelas, through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north toward the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omelas. Wow. Okay, it's the end of the story. Well, that's a punch in the gut, isn't it? Uh, I guess the, you know, obviously this is a, a story that invites us to examine our own society and the role of sacrifice, who or what is sacrificed, and what is the true value of that sacrifice, and how do the rest of us live with it. I think, you know, the turning point, I mean, there are several turning points, obviously, but I think... There's a very important um, section here toward the end where she describes how most people make their peace with this uh, horror that they have seen. Um You know, they may brood over it for weeks or years, but as time goes on, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, you know, at this point, it's already too destroyed. It wouldn't know how to live. It wouldn't get any comfort from its freedom. It's been afraid too long. Its habits are too uncouth, etc. 
And then she writes, their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. That's such a pivotal line. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she and then she turns to us and says, Now do you believe in them? Right? Before before it wasn't believable because it was all goody goody, it was all beautiful, happiness, light and colors and you know pleasure and no no downside. But now, now that I've explained to you that this whole thing is built upon the unimaginable misery of one innocent child, now does this make sense to you? So the question then is who or what is she referring to? with that child. You know, in some societies you can say, well, it's quite explicit. The, you know, the sacrifice of the virgins, the, you know, the Aztec blood rites of uh, sacrificing, even sacrificing, such a funny word, you know, sacrifice suggests that it's such um, a loss to the one who is performing this thing. Right? Like, I'm willing to sacrifice this kid. <laughs> it's not you. Sacrifice yourself. That's sacrifice. Um, but the, uh, you know, these rites where virgins are, are killed in order to um, appease the gods and, uh, you know, try to uh, ensure a, a fertile harvest for the year. I mean, that's pretty widespread in some some parts of history and the world. Um, so it could be something as explicit as that. But of course, there are other things that are a little more subtle, right? There's the there's slavery, right? I can certainly imagine the owners of slaves or the children of the owners of slaves when they reach an age where they realized in you know, 1855 in Alabama, some intelligent kid growing up on a plantation is like, wait a minute, they're people. And my father beats them and sells them and breaks up their families and sells the children. That, and that kid that he sold down the river is my age. And, and that kid will never see his mother again. And like you you can imagine them starting to see what's around them and having this kind of crisis of consciousness that she describes here. And most of them would come around to the beliefs held by their parents and their friends and the rest of their society that, yeah, okay, you know, slavery's tough, but, you know, these these Africans, they they wouldn't know how to be free. So, you know, there's no point in even thinking about it. They're too degraded to know any real joy. They don't know. They're, they're stupid. They don't know how to read and write. They could never live without the protection that we give them, right? Where she talks about how this, the kid needs the wall around. It needs the darkness. It needs his own shit to sit in. Because it's been there so long. It would be wretched without the walls about it to protect it. Also how she she says it could be a boy or a girl. And then she uses the pronoun it for the rest of it. Otherizing it. Objectifying it. It's not a human. It's a thing. It's not a boy or a girl. It's not a he or a she. It's an it. So it could be the the 
original American sin of slavery, which, you know, that phrase strikes me as problematic. Uh, I think the original sin of America is the deceit and genocide of the people who are already here. Um, But certainly slavery is another original sin of the founding of the United States. Um, Or it could be the destruction of the planet that we live on. But God damn it, I love my iPhone 11 or 12 or whatever the fuck it is. Or it could be the fact that the United States has become a country, a nation that is dependent upon destruction in order to, for the wheels of commerce to spin, the destruction of the natural world, the destruction of other countries. Got to blow up those bombs because we got to keep making more pumping plutonium into the aquifers, dumping. What's happening at Fukushima now? No one's even watching. You think they're still gathering and storing tons and tons and tons and tons of radioactive water that they're using to keep those cores from exploding? Or do you think those are just being quietly all that water is being quietly released into the Pacific Ocean. Come on. Yeah, there are many, many different uh, ways to read this story and, and uh, many different uh, dark rooms with the sniveling, suffering sacrificial child, industrial agriculture. Maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's a pig. Maybe it's a cow. Maybe it's chickens that are too sick to stand on their own legs, but they're still laying eggs. And once they stop laying eggs, then they'll be pulled out and slaughtered. Yeah. Lots of sacrifice for our pretty little weird ass world that we live in. All right, that's it. This book this uh, story is available online. There are PDFs of it all over the place. It's called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas and it's by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh I hope you enjoyed this, even though it was kind of a downer. Uh <laughs> um and, and and honestly let's let's not end without talking about the last paragraph because it's so important. At times, one one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage and, in fact, does not go home at all. And they leave. They fucking walk away from Omelas. And that's the name of the story, the ones who walk away from Omelas. What is their story? Where are they going? What does a society look like that isn't built on the tacit acceptance of the victimization of other people through slavery, through capitalist exploitation, or of animals through horrid conditions. What would that society look like? You know what I say and what I've written I think that that's the society in which our species evolved. And don't get me wrong. As she says, I'm not talking about noble savages. I'm not talking about people without complexities. I'm not talking about people who are naive and simple. If you've read Civilized to Death, you know that I'm talking about complex societies with structures in place to ensure the greatest good for everyone. And there is a sacrifice. There's a whole, I I read a review the other day on Amazon uh, of the book, and I don't go to Amazon very often. When Sex at Dawn came out, I was looking at reviews every couple of days. 
with Civilized to Death, like maybe once a month or something, I check in. And anyway, I saw this this review. The person wasn't real positive, as I remember. And they said um, they said that I was, um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, I was sort of naive about how great hunter-gatherer life was. I was uh, glorifying hunter-gatherer life. And then in the same review, they said, and I really didn't like the part where he talks about how uh, infanticide um, was common in hunter-gatherer groups. That sounds to me like genocide. And then he goes on, and it's like, wait a minute. You say I'm idolizing them, glorifying them, and yet you don't like the fact that I am clear that there were dark, difficult, painful aspects of that life. And the worst, from my perspective, is that a lot of hunter-gatherer children die. Some through infanticide, some through infection, some through accidents, but somewhere around 40% of hunter-gatherer children typically die before they're 10 years old. I made a big deal of that. I wrote a whole chapter about that specifically so that nobody would say I was glorifying or idolizing hunter-gatherer life. And here's this guy, he accuses me of doing it, and then he gets pissed off when I, uh, fucking can't please everyone, right? Um. But I, I think that where they're walking toward, for me, is they're walking back. They're walking back to a hunter-gatherer existence where animals are not domesticated and put in pins and forced to stand in their own shit. They're free. And yes, they die. They die. They're hunted. And when an arrow pierces its heart, it falls over and dies. And maybe it suffers for a few minutes. But it doesn't suffer its entire life. It's not veal. Um, so that's my take on it. Where do you think they're going? The people who walk away from homeless? Let me know. Thanks for listening. I will catch you next time.